What a week, huh? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. This week, we're replaying a conversation I had with Hillary Baroud and Shane Dixon Kavanaugh on Friday. Hillary is our state politics reporter, and Shane covers Portland City Hall for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We took to Twitter Spaces on Friday afternoon to talk about the election, the fallout, Governor-elect Tina Kotek, the Portland City Council race, and the charter reform effort successfully passing. We chatted a few hours before Christine Drazen formally conceded the race to Kotek in a YouTube video. Twitter Spaces is a fun forum where listeners can tune in in real time and ask questions. It's recorded on a cell phone instead of our usual digital recording platform. We may do more of these episodes from time to time in the future. So here's our conversation. I am Andrew Thien. I'm the podcast editor for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And I also host our weekly news podcast, Beat Check with the Oregonian, which comes out every Monday. And I am pleased to join my colleague, Hillary Baroud, who covers state politics and government for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Hillary, happy Friday. Can you hear me okay? I can. Welcome to the Twitter spaces. Here we are. It's Friday. It's Veterans Day. Uh, We made it past election night. Um, Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule of breaking news all over the place and writing about all these important races. Um, So, Hillary, let's just jump right into it. Tina Kotek is going to be the next governor of Oregon. How did Tina do it? Um, How did she do it? Well, a lot of money, (laughs) certainly that. Um, I'm still working on other assignments right now, so I haven't had a chance to check the total spending totals, uh, the total spending totals. You can tell I'm a little bit tired. Um, (laughs) It's understandable. But I know on Tuesday, it was up to $29 million um, just for Kotex campaign directly. And just looking at a couple other um, big examples of spending um, by entities that were basically pro-Kotec, anti-Republican um, Christine Drazen, anti-unaffiliated candidate Betsy Johnson. Um, they'd spent an additional around a million. Um, and all of that is likely to go up um, even since Tuesday, I'm sure, because we have seven-day reporting deadlines right now. And a lot of the spending happens right. It's reported uh, or the transactions are made right around election day. So I think money's a lot of it. Um, certainly there are a lot of volunteers um, going out to Canvas and phone bank and stuff like that. Um, volunteers through Democratic organizations, um, other allies of theirs, uh, unions had a lot of people um, doing some of that ground game work. And it was interesting to see how Christine Drazen was just not able to keep up with the level of spending or fundraising um, that Kotek had. And I do wonder, there's been a lot of discussion about Betsy Johnson uh, drawing some Democratic voters perhaps away from Kotek this election and how that could be a liability People haven't talked about as much how Betsy Johnson also drew some of the Phil Knight and um, a lot of other Republican donors' money away from from Christine Drazen. 
to reset this, uh, I'm Andrew Thien. I'm in here talking to Hillary Baroud, who covers uh, state politics and government for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Uh, if you have a question that you want to ask to Hillary, shoot it in the chat here, and uh, I'll look at those in about five or ten minutes. We can we can ask Hillary. Um, so, you know, there's been this narrative that this is going to be the closest uh, gubernatorial election um, you know, since 2010, but it seems at this point, uh, you know, we're looking at the vote differential, uh, the 2010 race, obviously, uh, Governor Kitzhaber and, and Chris Dudley, that was really tight. We're talking 22,000. Um, it, it doesn't appear that this is going to be really that close at all, right? It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it. Let's see. They're now up to, it's around, um, a, three a little less than um three point difference there i'm trying to like do math while i'm talking to you and, and you know looking back to secretary of state's website yeah. basically it's fluctuated um it looked really close earlier in the week um but certainly kotex pulled ahead a bit and i mean i'm i'm thinking really of the um of the percentages versus the the votes separating the two leading candidates because like our our turnout numbers and voter registration and everything fluctuates so um yeah it has it has widened a bit but it's i don't think it's still quite the the lead that um kate brown had four years ago okay so um what is salem going to look like uh with tina kotek you know in the in the governor's mansion and what's the legislative situation looking like for um for her administration? Well, that's going to be interesting. Um, she did say that the first six months or so that she would be in office, that she would really focus on um, getting some, some of the state programs that um, progressive Democrats in the legislature have passed and touted a lot as these victories. She would work on getting some of those to actually work and actually be delivering the benefits that so many Oregonians really desperately need and want to see um, to feel like the state is working better, whether that is getting more um, behavioral health, mental health and addiction services actually to be available to people because um, there's there's a lot of money that lawmakers have approved for that or just making sure that the paid family and medical leave program that was passed back in 2019 and is taking longer than all the other states pretty much that have, have tried have uh, stood up similar programs, making sure that that actually launches, um, even though it's going to be at this point, eight months late, probably at least. So she's got a lot of work to do. She's also said she would focus on uh, improving the accountability of state schools because Again, Democrats passed this huge amount of new funding for schools by enacting a new tax back in 2019. But Kotech has has said, and and you know, it seemed like voters are somewhat dis dissatisfied. They've been seeing all these headlines about how students' um, proficiency has just really, really dropped down in Oregon. Kids are not learning what they need to. They're really struggling, especially since the pandemic. But we had problems before that. Uh, Tina Kotek has said that she would focus on getting more accountability um, through executive action at the Department of Education um, and what other other levers that she might have so that when this money is going out to school districts, 
um, there's really more of a benefit being delivered or it's being spent in ways that are really helping students learn better. So Hillary, what do we think, you know, Betsy Johnson's role is here um, in terms of how did she affect the race? I mean, obviously, um, like I said, just to set it up, I mean, this is not going to be as close by all accounts as the 2010 uh, gubernatorial election uh, where Governor Kitzhaber, you know, went into the night uh, trailing uh, at the end of election night, trailing Chris Dudley, but ultimately prevailed by uh, 22,000 votes. What do we think of Betsy Johnson? Like, how, how did she affect this race and did she affect any other races? That's an interesting question, and I have not had the time to analyze um, how the vote breakdown for, you know, basically people voting other than the two major parties, how does that look compared to previous elections? So <laughs> there's probably people who've looked at that already um, that know a bit more about it, but it does look like the Constitution and Libertarian candidates, they both got less than 0.5, less than half of a percentage point so far. So I do wonder if uh, Betsy Johnson drew some votes <laughs> away from um, other uh, minor party candidates. Um, it just doesn't seem like she's she's at less than 9% right now. Uh, she, she just spent so much um she spent so much and just really got so little at the end of the day in terms of people actually voting for her. Did she change, um, did she change the discussions that were happening in the campaigns? I'm not sure about that either. Um, a lot of the issues that Betsy Johnson was bringing up, Christine Drazen was also addressing, uh, whether it was, the need for uh, boosting law enforcement, more opposition to um, kind of a Betsy Johnson even would say, would talk about some of these issues in more of a conservative or populist tone than Christine Drazen, you know, and she was warning about, about Oregon becoming woke and broke. Um, so it wasn't really clear that she change the uh, conversation in the race that would have happened otherwise from what would have happened otherwise. So Hillary, let's talk about governor Kotek. I mean, she's said that she is going to governor elect Kotek to be clear. Um, she said that she's going to declare a homelessness state of emergency um, right off the bat. What are the practical and political ramifications of that? That's a good question, Andrew. And I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a homelessness reporter and yeah. um, for everyone listening in, she might know more details about that, but that is just not um, something that I've had time to look at. We're still writing about election results yeah. right now. Fair enough. Okay, so let's let's stick at the you know what what about Christine Drazen? Wh what where does she go from here? Do we have any sense of like what this means for her? Or is she going to be a voice that? You know, she's 50. She's obviously uh, had a, a, some success here in her initial statewide campaign, but fell short. Mm -hmm. Do you know what, what happens from here with her? I, I don't, but it'd be, I'm really curious to see if she remains involved in Oregon politics because she, she, wasn't, um, she wasn't in elected office for very long, but it was um, 
it seemed like she was effective in the in in her job, basically leading House Republicans. Um, whether that was getting some victories, she netted one seat, or Republicans netted one seat in the House. Well, she was the leader, and she was um, pretty forceful during redistricting in pushing for um, maps that she felt would be fair, you know, maps that would be more favorable to Republicans. She is just seems like a natural public speaker and very comfortable um, in these positions, uh, like a high profile position, public service. So I don't know what, um, what political office would really make sense from there, especially given it's just hard to be a Republican in Oregon, given our long history, which this just uh, built upon of electing Democrats at statewide to statewide positions. But um, I do anticipate she's going to continue to have some kind of impact here, whether it's in the private sector um, or something else. So what's the makeup, um, you know, the, the legislative makeup going to be do we know enough at this point on friday um it, it seems like the supermajority that uh, governor brown uh enjoyed uh for a time is gone right yeah i believe we have called that the state senate is going to um, just have a simple democratic majority probably not the supermajority at this point and i might be behind on the results because this was not something i was writing about but i think the house that was still unclear whether it was going to come down from a supermajority. I don't think that we're expecting at this point that Democrats would actually lose a majority in either chamber. So that just mm -hmm. means that Democrats could still pass policy um, bills, assuming that they have support among their members, but they couldn't pass. A supermajority just matters for passing a tax increase. And at this point, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the economy does, but we've just been having cycle after cycle of state tax revenues that come in above expectations. So, and, and that coupled with the fact that we uh, just had this tax increase passed a few years ago for mm -hmm. education. Uh, there, I don't know that there's a huge push for additional taxes at this point. And Tina Kotek has talked about, hey, we have, because um, we did ask candidates about this, could you, would you push for any major changes in Oregon tax policy. And Tina Kotek didn't say <laughs> she wouldn't, I don't think, but she, she was just focusing on, hey, we, we need to focus on um, effectively spending the money that we have right now. So I'm not hearing that there's going to be a big push for that. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens with, with budgets, of course. Um, but I think another factor could be, even though it doesn't look like Democrats will have a supermajority in the Senate, um, there were some Democrats who I've seen win in the Senate who are more liberal, and that's been an issue for them because they had Betsy Johnson, who could be a pretty conservative um, Democrat on some issues. She would still block some things, even though Democrats had a supermajority in the state Senate. So, um, what things could still get through that might've even been a challenge when Betsy was there, that that'd be interesting to watch. Yeah. What do you make of, um, you know, speaker, uh, now governor elect, uh, 
Uh, Tina Kotek mentioned that she had spoken to her rivals and said she wanted to pursue policies that they all agreed on. What did you make of that? And and what um, policies or issues, I guess, is probably a better way to phrase that. What what issues did they agree agree upon uh, during the the campaign? Sure. Well, off the bat, um, one I can think of is. Um, well, it's more of a local decision, but <laughs> governor candidates talked a lot about local decisions while they're on the campaign trail, like um, local law enforcement policy, right? Um, with Portland being the center of that. But they all, all three of them I know at the KGW Oregonian debate said that they support Mayor Wheeler's plan um, in Portland for creating these large camps for um for unhoused people in the area and um sweeping people off of the streets and all of the other um elements of that plan so you know that could be one example to the extent that the governor would support that uh that the kotech would support that as governor and i know that i think that some funding some state funding was was going to be needed for that um They'd all talked about the need to increase law enforcement, whether that is finding some ways to, I don't know how much they really can speed up the process um, to get more, more um, officers um, like trained and ready to work. But they'd all talked about increasing the number of state troopers, for example, um, they'd all talked about the need to improve behavioral health, mental health, and addictions services. So those are just a few highlights of what I would what I would expect that she might be referencing. Uh, how do you think, uh, you know, as someone who's covered walkouts in Salem before, how do you think the, the apparent passage of Measure 113 is going to affect um, just kind of the relations between the two parties and just overall governments down in the, in the legislature? I don't, I don't know. Um, it's interesting because that measure to refresh people's memory, although anyone listening to this might be pretty familiar with it, I'm sure they do, yeah. topic, but it doesn't change Oregon's um, quorum requirement, which is what has made it possible for Republicans to effectively use walkouts to um, kill things that they disagree with. In recent years, we just have a a high quorum requirement to even be able to to hold votes in the legislature, two thirds. Um, So it didn't change that. Instead, it just said that it's going to allow, um, well, people that have not allowed, but it's basically going to punish lawmakers who have I think it's at least 10 or more than 10 unexcused absences. And uh, the, the punishment would be that they are not able to take office the next time that they would um, at their subsequent election. Um, so that it doesn't say that you can't run for election. There's probably a technical reason why, but you couldn't take office. Um, so the, the majority party in any chamber is who decides who's excused um that's handed out pretty pretty liberally i mean i think i've seen people get excused just because they say hey i'm I'm running late (laughs) so please excuse me from this floor session um 
So that'd be interesting to see how that gets handled by whichever party is in, in the majority. Um, but other than that, I don't know exactly how it's going to affect the dynamics because you could still have a short walkout since it's 10 unexcused absences. Um, you could still conceivably do a short walkout and not um, have your any of your members trigger that. The other thing is um, Republicans had been hoping to just pick up enough seats in the legislature that they could kind of curtail some of the Democratic priorities that they might disagree with the most. Um, and perhaps if they were worried about a tax increase, then they've already achieved that. Okay, Hillary, before I let you go, just um, what's going to stick with you from this race where, you know, uh, the governor, the, the governor Brown, obviously was a big character in the race, as as was, you know, the city of Portland. Um, but I'm wondering what's going to stick with you when you look back at uh, the governor's race? Well, um, it was often seen as uh, potentially a close race. And obviously, Democrats were really concerned about the outcome because of how much they spent on this. But at the end of the day, um, it just does make me wonder when we could ever see uh, a member of another party or not a party um, really really, really get closer when, um, this highest elected office in our state. And it was just an interesting, um, an interesting year too, because we thought there might be kind of a, um, a surprise or like outsider candidate when Nick Kristoff was trying to get into the race. Um, and there'd been, talk of uh, a variety of people who might run, you know, if you go back two years or so. And at the end of the day, it was three, um, three lawmakers, two of them quite longtime lawmakers in Oregon, uh, even if most Oregonians might not have heard about them if they weren't following politics closely. So those are two things that I think are notable about it. Well, thank you for taking some time at the end of a busy week to talk about it. And uh, we're going to let you move on. And um, there were a couple questions in there that are pretty nitty gritty that I, I think at the beginning of the of the chat, Hillary made it clear maybe wasn't something she was able to follow. Um, so we'll we'll get that next time, perhaps. But I wanted to bring in um, Shane Dixon Cavanaugh, who covers Portland City Hall for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Shane, happy Friday to you. Happy Friday, Andrew Thien. Appreciate it. Uh, happy Veterans Day to any veterans out there in the chat. Um, and if you have any questions for Shane, shoot them. Um, you know, Shane obviously covers Portland City Council, and we're going to talk about the Charter Reform Amendment and uh, uh, the lone uh, City Council race. So if you have any questions, shoot them in the in the chat here, and, and uh, we'll ask Shane. But uh, Shane, let's start with... Um, with Commissioner Joanne Hardesty being the latest incumbent uh, after a very long time, as you've reported, uh, not seeing any incumbents lose. Um, now we've seen a few. Um, how did this happen? Uh, how did Renee Gonzalez win a seat on Portland City Council? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of different ways in which I could answer that question, perhaps. But w we can start with just some of the basics here. Um, 
the first being that voters in Portland are almost uniform in their opinion that uh, city government is not doing a very good job right now uh, making meaningful progress on a handful of very significant issues, whether that is crime, uh, both in terms of low-level sort of property crimes and thefts to historically high numbers of shootings and homicides to, uh, you know, a continued humanitarian crisis on our streets with folks who are experiencing homelessness to widening inequality and affordability in the city of Portland to trying to recover and come out of the last couple of years that have where we've seen COVID, uh, social unrest, and a whole host of other issues, uh, you know, confront the city in a way that it's never seen before. So, Joanne, there were very significant differences in terms of policies on some of the biggest issues confronting the city between Renee Gonzalez and Joanne Hardesty. But there is also just the simple fact that in the general election here this year, uh, Joanne Hardesty was the only incumbent who was on the ballot. So I think, uh, you know, in addition to uh, some of her positions on crime and homelessness, sort of being outside of uh, where a lot of folks are on those issues right now, there was just the simple fact that being an incumbent right now uh, at Portland City Hall was just not going to be, it was going to be a very tough race for anybody in that position. So Shane, you um, and our colleague Mark Friesen, who I see here as well, uh, did an interesting analysis looking at kind of where um, where the votes came for the candidates. Can you describe you know, how exactly uh, Renee Gonzalez stitched together a, a winning um, coalition, I guess, or if not coalition, just geographically, the voters, where they come from? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really fascinating to sort of do these uh, post-election analyses of how people in Portland are voting on particular issues or candidates. And uh, it, based on the sort of deep dive that Mark and I took uh, with regard to this race, it is very clear. So as of right now, Friday afternoon, still not all of the votes have been f- finalized and tallied in Portland sure. and Multnomah County, but we're looking at a 53-47 uh, split between uh, Gonzalez and Hardesty. But the way in which Gonzalez appears to have uh, carved a path of victory was by running up extremely high margins in communities east of Interstate 205 and west of the Willamette River. In both of those places, Gonzalez carried the vote nearly two to one. He won practically 66% uh, in East Portland and uh, on the west side. And then within some of the more traditionally progressive and liberal enclaves that are in north and northeast and inner southeast, now there is you know, quite a bit of difference between some of those precincts, but overall, both in Southeast and North and Northeast, Gonzalez stayed very competitive with Joanne Hardesty. Uh, cumul- cumulatively, it was 49-51 in both those portions of the city. 
So we were talking offline and you tweeted about this a little bit today, but um, what's kind of interesting about about that uh, dynamic in terms of some more affluent West side and uh, east of 205, you know, uh, a more diverse and also uh, more economically disadvantaged in some cases area of Portland. Um, what, what's interesting about that and how does that reflect a national picture? Yeah, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, and as you and I were sort of discussing, first of all, it, the sort of electoral map for Rene Gonzalez this week is nearly identical to the electoral map that uh, allowed Ted Wheeler to win a second term in office and defeat Sarah Iannarone in 2020. Uh, in terms of the type of coalition of voters they were able to amass, and it's sort of an interesting mix and blend of folks because on the one hand you have uh, some affluent white Portlanders on the west side, and we're, and also business and real estate interests but also being able to get a substantial number of votes in portions of the city that are lower income and tend to be more racially and ethnically diverse. Meanwhile, uh, being relatively competitive in the sort of more progressive and liberal precincts of uh, inner East Portland, but also having to win big in neighborhoods like Laurelhurst, Irvington, Hollywood, Beaumont, Wilshire, uh, Sunnyside. And so, you know, I, I think one of the some of the takeaways uh, we can make with how this type of coalition works is that uh, I think really on sort of it sort of reflects uh, a larger debate and split among Democrats in general, uh, locally and nationally. I mean, there is sort of this. Uh, there, there is some tension between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and those who tend to identify as more centrist and moderate. Um, I think uh, in the race against Gonzalez and Hardesty, we saw that play out uh, and can see sort of what those uh, coalitions form and what it would take for a more centrist candidate in Portland to win. And similarly, we saw a similar coalition come together in a place like New York City when Eric Adams uh, was able to uh, win and become mayor of New York last year. It was almost an identical type of coalition, although New York and Portland are very uh, different places, uh, you know, demographically, it's still sort of the same, um, you know, coalitions that were coming together to help Adams win. So, Shane, so what do we make of this new city council, uh, which will have Mayor Ted Wheeler, um, Commissioner Carmen Rubio, Mingus Mapp, Stan Ryan, and, and now Renee Gonzalez? Um, I mean, it, it, how does this, this council compare to previous ones, and what do we expect them to, to tackle as a group? Well, I think the first thing to sort of point out, it's connected to the other race that I was covering this election cycle, uh, which, we'll was charter, that. Yeah, which, <laughs> yeah. which is charter reform. But, the, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is now that Portlanders have overwhelmingly approved the ballot measure to dramatically transform city hall, city government and <clears throat> Portland's election system. This current crop of council members is only going to have two years before the entire uh city council gets reconfigured. So Renee Gonzalez is 
joining the city council um, in January, and Dan Ryan just won re-election to a full term. But everybody, uh, including the mayor, uh, well, they're only going to have two years before we're going to have elections again. And in two years, we're going to be electing 12 city council members, a mayor and city auditor. So we have a pretty small window of time with this current city council. And in some ways, with Renee Gonzalez defeating Joanne Hardesty, the actual sort of political balance within uh, the council at the moment doesn't change that dramatically because for at least the last, at least six months and, and, and closer to probably for the last year, there has been a pretty consistent alignment on some of the big issues like crime and homelessness among Ted Wheeler Mingus Maps and Dan Ryan. And so that's three votes on the council to begin with on most of those issues. And I would say that Gonzalez is really closely aligned with the three of them on uh, on those topics as well. So having Gonzalez on the council uh, doesn't sort of tip the balance in terms of any, uh, you know, potential votes on, on those issues. I think the one thing that the city council is going to lose by no longer having Joanne Hardesty on council is the person who is, uh, you know, by far and away uh, the most vocal uh, voice and advocate for um, uh, many low-income Portlanders and, uh, and and communities of color. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of you know being a voice for those constituencies and those individuals. Um, it's just, there's not going to be uh, a person who is uh, as laser focused on representing those folks as, as Joanne was. To reset this, uh, I'm Andrew Thien. I'm the podcast editor at the Oregonian and Oregon Live, and we're chatting with Shane Dixon Cavanaugh. He covers Portland City Hall for the Oregonian. Um, one of uh, the listeners kind of teed up a perfect question uh, that bridges our two topics here, talking about commissioner artistry uh, and the charter reform amendment. They asked basically, I feel like Joanne Hardesty is one of the most vocal and enthusiastic fan bases uh, of any local politician. Any word from her camp on if she'll run again in two years with an expanded city council? Let's start with that before we get into the bones of the, <laughs> of the charter uh, plan itself. What have you heard from the commissioner? Anything? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, the dust has just started to settle uh, with this very contentious and bruising city council race. Uh, you know, Commissioner Hardesty uh, conceded the race less than 48 hours ago to Renee Gonzalez. I'm not sure if she's made any sort of formal uh, decision or declaration on what she's going to do next or whether or not she wants to uh, try to uh, run for office again locally here in Portland. She certainly told her supporters on election night that she, no matter what happened, she was going to continue working on the same issues that she has worked on and focused her life around for the last three decades, whether that was in office or not. Um, certainly, I would say that it would not surprise me at this time uh, if uh, Joanne Hardesty decided to run for office again in, in two years. And sort of the kind of fascinating thing with how uh, the 
charter reform will create these geographic council districts with uh, multiple members being elected to each one is that it is very conceivable to see a scenario where a Renee Gonzalez and Joanne Hardesty uh, could be serving together in City Hall in 2025. So Shane, you reported, uh, you, you mentioned it's only been 48 hours, but you you managed to crank out a piece explaining uh, what people are thinking in terms of how this new form of government is going to roll out. Can you just explain like what, how is this going to happen from what you've gleaned and, um, and what's the time frame? <sighs> Hear that? That's a deep sigh. <laughs> yeah, I heard. No, it. it's, it's, uh, I mean, I think last I checked, uh, the, the, Charter reform ballot measure, you know, is passing overwhelmingly. It's something like 57 or 58 percent of voters uh, gave it the green light, even though there was a pretty uh, well organized and reasonably well funded uh, opposition to the measure as well. But so, you know, Portlanders passed this resoundingly and overwhelmingly, and it's going to be the changes uh, to city government and elections cannot be understated. I mean, it's going to be a radical reconfiguration of both. And, but now the, <laughs> now the hard part begins, which is actually implementing these substantial changes, both in terms of uh, restructuring city government and uh, designing and launching an entirely new election system. By uh, the rules set forth in the ballot measure and in the charter, this all has to happen within the next 24 months. And it is an absolutely astonishing and monumental task uh, to do that within the time frame, especially if we go back and look at the track record for the city of Portland with regard to uh, implementing or executing policies or new programs. Uh, Andrew, when we were talking earlier today, I think I mentioned to you that, uh, you know, it's probably going to be close to four to five years. It will take the city that long to create its new police oversight system that voters passed in 2020. That whole process was barely getting off the ground. Uh, it took the city two and a half years, so that's six months more than this current time frame for the ballot, this ballot measure to sort of design and launch the Portland Clean Energy Fund, which has also had some issues and got off to a rocky start. And uh, Dan Ryan, who's in charge of uh, creating and opening six safe rest villages, uh, it's going to take him two years to pull that off. And we're looking at doing something that is on a size and scale that is larger than any one of those three things that I just mentioned in a shorter time frame. Um, I think the, you know, some of the folks at the city who are in charge of the transition, you know, said at a press conference this week, you know, we've got our work cut out for ourselves and they certainly do. So, that's going to be the really interesting thing now is to see uh, how this thing comes together and how it's implemented. And part of the challenge, too, for the city is that there were a lot of pieces and components of the uh, charter uh, changes 
that were sort of left uh, kind of TBD uh, so that, you know, the measure had to pass and they're going to have to figure out, uh, in, uh, you know, some of the most fundamental questions with, uh, with those reforms. Well, it, what's interesting to me, Shane, is, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that's interesting, but there's going to be a lot of a whole, you know, generation potentially of new politicians that come out of this. Right. I mean, when you're expanding, the city council and you're focusing geographically, um, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of people raising their hands, um, including maybe some people who are clamoring for these changes in the first place. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, the fact that we're going from a five person city council, and that includes the mayor to a 12 person, uh, not including the mayor. So, uh, you know, city hall will be 13 elected representatives starting in 2025. You know, that's certainly, uh, that broadens the pool of prospective candidates. Uh, and the way in which this new system is going to work is that we're going to carve the city of Portland up into four geographic districts and elect three representative representatives from each district. So candidates are no longer going to have to run citywide. And, you know, one of the things that the proponents and architects of the charter reform, uh, you know, measure, one of their, uh, you know, uh, sort of aspirations here was that by creating the system that they've come up with, and I've written about this extensively in previous coverage, uh, is that this type of system they believe is going to attract a much more uh, diverse uh, roster of prospective candidates, and we're and diversity is not just in terms of you know racial or ethnic makeup. Uh, they believe that this is going to create opportunities for people from a wide range of income backgrounds, uh, life experiences, professional backgrounds. Um, and other ways in which we can think about sort of diversity and even party affiliation for that matter. Um, it, you know, within this system, it is, you know, much more likely that somebody who, uh, you know, skews to the right of the political spectrum could have a real shot at uh, getting a seat on the city council, um, at, more so than uh, under our current system. Yeah, I was going to say some, some people listening or uh, who pay attention to these things, uh, you know, Portland's obviously a very left-leaning city, but they may make that argument that that's already the dynamic today. But um, we'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, so what what else uh, other takeaways that you've had just from this coverage uh, of, you know, this is one of those big things that kept, you know, you look at the sales tax, fluoride and the charter reform uh you know, changing Portland's form of government, those have been things that have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and probably missing a tried and failed, um, you know, throughout the years at the ballot box. But this time it, it went through. One of them went through. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, both locally here in Portland and Multnomah County and then also statewide in the last few years, I mean, there has been a string of, uh, successful uh, progressive ballot measures that have been passed and approved, um, whether uh, that's Measure 110, the drug decriminalization bill statewide, or the creation of the Portland Clean Energy Fund in 2018. I mean, Multnomah County voters approved universal pre-K uh, just a couple of years ago. And so I kind of see the what, you know, with charter reform in particular, there are some other 
elements at play. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, you know, one of the things that uh, the proposal had going for it is uh, that there was just such um, sky high dissatisfaction with the current uh, status quo with city government. Um, But it also just sort of, uh, you know, illustrates how Portlanders and to some extent Oregonians, uh, you know, are open to trying ideas uh, that have uh, not been tried or uh, or not on the same size and scale uh, as in other in, in, as in other places. So there's that as well. Well, any other parting thoughts or things on your on your mind? Uh, I mean, obviously, a, a very interesting election locally, and uh, thank you for bringing such comprehensive coverage to the table. I, I mean, I'm just going to be absolutely fascinated to see uh, how the next couple of years play out, both in terms of whether or not the city is able to fulfill its promise to voters and get this uh, you know, form of government and election system uh, reforms in place within two years. I'm going to be following that extremely closely. And also, uh, it will be interesting to see uh, whether or not the Portland City Council, and I mean, and this also goes to Multnomah County and having a new county chair as well, but I mean, Portland has been struggling for almost three years now on uh, on some of the same issues, and in s- some ways, uh, the most pressing and urgent and dire issues confronting the city have only gotten worse in this time, there's been very few indications or indicators that they've gotten better. So is the city and the county going to be able to turn a corner uh, on those issues in the next two years? That remains to be seen. Will, uh, you know, swapping out uh, Joanne Hardesty for Renee Gonzalez really make a sizable difference in terms of how City Hall functions and is governed. I mean, so those are the questions that I have, and I look forward to sort of covering and helping our readers make sense of. Well, it looks like actually we have a, oh, it's gone. We had a question that I was going to get to, but um, well, uh, Shane, so much, thanks so much for all of your coverage and for talking about it and go enjoy your weekend. Oh, no, our request is back. Uh, We're going to go to, Jimmy here. Jim, let's see if he. Jimmy, can you hear us? Jimmy, you you have the mic if you're if you're game. Hi, how are you doing today? We're good, we're, Jimmy. We're, go ahead and ask your question to Shane. Um, they're ready. The the Architects playing today. The Huskies. The ducks and the huskies. Yeah. Well, that's that's a whole different uh, form <laughs> of uh, form of uh, <laughs> political theater that's going to take place uh, down in Eugene this weekend. But uh, Shane, what are your thoughts on the ducks and the huskies? <laughs> I, I'm I'm not going to lie, Andrew. I haven't been putting a lot of thought into the ducks or the huskies this week. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. But if if you're interested in that, uh, go check out our. Uh, this is a cross promotional opportunity. Check out our <laughs> our uh, Bill Orham, our sports columnist for the Oregonian Oregon Live. Uh, he's got a <laughs> he's got a podcast called Sports by Northwest, and uh, you can check that out and listen to the game. Uh, obviously, that's always a fun one. But I think we've probably blabbed enough. 
Um, Shane, thanks for your work. Uh, thanks for tuning in on this Friday, everyone. Um, I'm going to grab this audio and it'll be available on our Beat Check podcast feed. Uh, if you like podcasts, we've got so many different excellent podcasts beyond Bill Orams, uh, who's our sports columnist. Um, we've got my podcast, Beat Check with the Oregonian that runs every Monday, uh, where I talk to people like Shane and Hillary and, uh, you know, Sammy Edge, who's in this space as well, and other Oregonian staffers about what they're working on. Uh, so check that out and check out our Travel and Outdoors podcast, Peak Northwest as well. Uh, I hope everyone has a safe and happy weekend, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. We'll keep experimenting from time to time with Twitter spaces, so follow us on Twitter if you don't already, but we'll be back with a regular episode next week. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show, and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.